You have probably, as I have, heard it all. You're the only ones who think you're going to heaven, aren't you? I mean, aren't you the ones who think, well, maybe you don't think that, but aren't you the ones who are kind of like a, like a cult? Yeah, you know, I, I would go to church there, but I'm not sure I'd fit in. I, mean, I, I don't dress like you. I mean, we, we've heard it all. And it goes on and on and on. There are so many ideas that people have about the church and about Christianity in their mind that they use as a reason, maybe a better way of putting it as an excuse, for not wanting to come to church, not wanting to return to church, not wanting to study the Bible with us. Last week we began a a three-part series that we're entitling, Be Our Guest. And we're striving through these three lessons to see how we can play a part in helping to move people from fearful to faithful. By way of very quick review, last week we spent some time thinking about how we need to play a role in helping people overcome fears. We call the lesson, Kill the Beast, Kill the Beast of Fear. And how for some people, coming to church, studying the Bible, coming to a church of Christ, whatever, is is a real and fearful thing. There is a real fear there for a lot of people, and that's okay for a while. But we can't just shake our heads and act like, well, that's not a real thing. Because it is a real thing. And each of us need to play a role in talking up Jesus and talking up His church and being excited about what He has done and what His people are doing in order to help that beast of fear to be overcome. We mentioned that it may not work with every person every single time. But that's our goal, is to speak up and to speak lovingly. And just as Philip told Nathaniel in John chapter 1 to come and see, we need to show people constantly the good and the great things that Christ is doing through His people. But there are some people who have a certain mindset that is so ingrained in their minds that it's very hard to break. What can we do to help break the cycle, to help break that mindset, to help break through that In the fairy tale, Beauty and the Beast, you might remember there's a scene where Belle has finally had enough. She's frightened, she desperately misses her family, and so she makes the decision that she is going to to run away from the castle. She's finally going to leave. She just can't take this any longer. And so she leaves the castle and goes out into the dark night. And by the way, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen this, last week's spoiler alert, this week's spoiler alert, next week's spoiler alert... But she goes out into the dark forest. And if you've seen the movie or the play or read the story, you remember that as she's in the forest, she is attacked by a pack of savage wolves. And her life hangs in the balance. She can't fight all of these things off. They are surrounding her. There's nowhere for for her to go. Her life hangs in the balance. At least her health hangs in the balance. She is frightened beyond degree. But you remember what happens if you've seen the story. You know that in that moment, when just it seems her life is about to be taken, the beast himself appears. And the beast comes to her rescue. And he fights off that pack of wolves. He fights them for quite a while. Leah and I have been privileged to see two different versions of the the play, not the movie, the play. And it's a very, very tense scene in the play, how they display this particular battle between the beast and, and these wolves going on on stage. But the beast fights them off. But in the midst of that battle, in the midst of that fight, he is injured quite severely. And Belle can't leave him there. And so Belle takes him back to the castle herself. 
And you remember that she begins of her own will to, to nurse him back to health. But the whole tone, the whole tenor of the story, of the fairy tale, begins to change with that series of actions, but also when one very simple phrase is said. And it's when the beast, in the midst of being helped by Bell, looks at her and very gently as he can says, Thank you. From that point on, the whole tone of the story changes. Oh, there's, there's still ups and downs. There's still some struggle. There's still some infighting. There's still some difficulty. But from that point on in the fairy tale, it is an upward climb. The rest of the story, for the most part, is, is one of romance. It is one of gratitude. Because someone, in this case the beast, someone decided to break the cycle. Someone decided to do something that was different than what had been done before. And now that, that gloom that has uh, gone over the castle, that curse that's over the castle, while it's still there for a while, it's lifting. And while there's still a fear that's there, the gloom and the anger begins to lessen throughout the rest of the story. That, well, that's a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale that one phrase could change it all. I want you to turn your Bibles back to John chapter 1. And you may think, wait a minute, didn't we look at this chapter last week? I mean, the scripture reading this week seemed really, really similar to the scripture reading last week. They, they overlap. And we're going to be looking specifically this morning at one individual in this story. It's the person of Nathaniel. Nathaniel is only on the pages of Scripture for, for a few moments, but this is one of those very famous times where you see him on the pages of Scripture for a few verses that give us a great insight. What did it take for Nathaniel to become a follower of Jesus Christ? In reality, it took breaking the cycle. It took something being different. In this case, it was a cycle of, we may say, prejudice, we may say arrogance, Something that could have completely turned him away from or against the Lord Jesus. But instead, Nathaniel had enough of a spark within him to be willing to listen. And it changed everything. What I want us to do this morning is examine this particular text in John chapter 1. And I want us to see that there are three components to help break that cycle. Three components that change Nathaniel's life forever. And they are, in reality, the same three components that must be in place if someone who is not a Christian, or someone who has been a Christian and needs to return in faithfulness, the same three components that need to be in place for a change to occur, for the cycle to be broken. The first component is a kind invitation. Nazareth, as we mentioned last week, was a very nothing town. We mentioned it in last week's lesson, but Nathaniel, when he asked that, that question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? When he asked that question, he was only voicing the popular opinion of the day. It may not have been the right opinion, it may not have been something someone should have held, but it was what was real as far as the perception of the time. He was just reflecting what would have been said all around him all the time, and probably what he had heard, even maybe from infancy. But Philip refused to enter into an argument over the historical shortcomings of Nazareth. Philip refused to say, well, let's think about that for a while, and let's do an educational and economic study of that particular village and see if what you have said is correct. He refused to enter into that kind of conversation. It would not be surprising to me, by the way, if Philip himself had not been somewhat surprised that Jesus had come from Nazareth. I don't think Nathaniel was the only one who held on to that particular kind of view in that time. 
But Philip had seen Jesus. And no matter where Jesus might have been from, he realized, as verse 45 tells us, that Jesus really was the one of whom Moses, in the law, and also the prophets wrote. And so when Nathaniel enters into that, that mindset of, in Nazareth? I mean, I mean, really? Nazareth? Philip doesn't enter, enter an argument. Instead, he gives that very simple and profound invitation, a very kind invitation, come and see. Now, I'm not a big fan of making a point from something that's not found in the Bible, but there is something here that's interesting to me when you compare or maybe contrast it with what happened just a few verses earlier. Do you remember earlier in John chapter 1, and we talked about last week how these dominoes are falling in the chapter. John reaches out to, to Andrew, and Andrew reaches out to, to Simon or Peter, and then Philip hears, and then Nathaniel. You have these dominoes falling. Remember that illustration from last week? It's interesting how the writer John almost goes out of his way to tell us that Andrew and Simon or Peter are related. Notice verses 40 and 41. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Twice in a very, very short time, John the writer goes on to tell us that Andrew and Simon Peter are brothers. And you're going, well, so what? Did you notice in verse 45, all it says is Philip found Nathaniel? After going almost out of his way to tell us that Andrew and Simon or Peter are brothers, you now just simply have this note of Philip found Nathaniel. Are they related? Maybe. Some scholars suggest they might be. But more likely, they are just simply friends, co-workers, neighbors. What's, what's my point? Each one of us has someone close to us. Maybe like Andrew, it's in our family. Maybe like Philip, it's someone we just know. Each one of us has someone who is close to us who needs to hear about Jesus Christ. Who needs a kind invitation like Philip gave to Nathaniel. For some of you, some of us, maybe it's people in, in our family. Maybe it's your children who are of age to become Christians and haven't yet. Maybe they're grown children. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a brother or a sister like it was with Andrew. Maybe it's a cousin. But it's someone in your family. But even if it's not, even if your family is a true Christian family, you know somebody, someone you live close by, someone you work with, someone you go to class with, someone who's on the team with you, someone who just simply lives down the street, someone who you used to know in high school or college. You know someone who needs to hear about Jesus Christ. But when you invite, will you enter into a debate? Or will you simply say, come and see? Yes, we need to stand firm on the truth. But we need to break that cycle of just arguing and fighting all the time. Some of you will recognize the name Aldous Huxley. He was a, a well-known agnostic in the 1800s. And one time he was at a weekend party where the party was going to last through the entire weekend. And a lot of the people who were at this particular party were, were church-going people. And he knew that on Sunday morning they were going to be leaving the party and going to church and then coming back. And, of course, he wasn't going to go for certain. But Huxley realized that at the same party... There was one older man who was not well-known in society. He had just been invited to the party, but he was well-known for just being of simple faith. And so Huxley walked up to that individual, that older man, and said, Would you please explain to me why you're a Christian? Now, Aldous Huxley was an agnostic. He did not believe that you could know whether there was a God or not, but he held very strongly to that belief. He was a brilliant orator. 
Some have called him a great debater. And this very simple man replied, I I can't do that. You could demolish my arguments in a minute. I'm not clever enough to argue with you. And Huxley knew that that was true, but in in some level of humility he said, I don't want to argue with you. I just want you to tell me simply what this Christ means to you. And so this very gentle older man simply told him of his faith, how much Jesus meant to him without such great argumentation that Huxley was used to. And the story is told that when that man was through speaking, Huxley's eyes were filled with tears. And he's reported to have said, I would give my right hand if only I could believe that. Now what changed this man's mind, or at least what made him think that way? Was it fantastic argumentation? No. Was it someone who was a brilliant orator? Not in the least. Was it someone who had all the greatest debate skills down? Not not at all. It was someone who understood that what I need to do is simply tell someone simply how much Jesus means to me. Do you remember the Apostle Peter would tell us later in his life? It's a verse we sometimes use to talk about knowing everything about the Bible. Always be ready to give a reason. And we sometimes make that the verse, you know, always be ready to answer every Bible question someone's ever given you. That's not, that's not what the verse says at all. Always be ready to give a reason, a defense, an apologetic, literally. For the reason, for the hope that is in you, before you go on your thinking, just, just stick right there for a second. How do people notice hope in our lives? Have you ever thought about that? For the reason, for the hope that is in you. How do people notice that we have hope? Simply by the way we live. We don't live like everybody else. Yes, the world still caves in on us at times, but we don't act like everybody else when that happens. When we have joy in our life, we don't act like everybody else in those moments. All the glory and all the praise and good times and bad always goes to God. Whether life seems hopeful or hopeless, we live in hope. So people will ask, why do you live that way? And then Peter goes on to say, but when you tell them that, you sit them down and you beat them over the head with the Bible and make sure they fall in line. That's not at all what that verse says, is it? Yet do it with meekness and fear. Do it with gentleness and respect. Even though in that moment you may be, quote unquote, the expert. You may be the one that someone is coming to to ask the question. Peter says, you don't use that as a moment to just bash people over the head with, with, with Scripture and with, with, with all the reasons why they're wrong. No, you, you talk to them. You don't be afraid to talk to them, but you do it with gentleness and respect. There is a time for argumentation. There is a time for debate. There's no denying that. I'm not downplaying that in the least. But the vast majority of the time, if we are simply showing our faith by the way we live in both hopeful times and hopeless times, people simply need to hear us say, come and see. There needs to be a kind invitation. But number two, there also needs to be a level of compliment, an honest compliment. I think it says a lot about Nathaniel. Excuse me, that he took Philip's invitation to come and see Jesus. And Jesus, perfect as always, does not see Nathaniel coming and start just blasting him for questioning his hometown. Jesus does not stand up and say, oh, nothing good can come out of Nazareth, can it? Come here, let me, let me tell you why something good can. That's not what happens at all. Instead, I love how Jesus spoke about Nathaniel. It's interesting that verse 47 of John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus said these things, notice it, of Nathaniel. It doesn't say he said these things to Nathaniel. 
In other words, what seems to be happening is, as Nathanael is coming toward Jesus, Jesus says these words loudly enough where Nathanael can hear them, but so can everybody else. Jesus is not afraid to give this compliment to those who are listening. He says it of Nathanael as Nathanael comes nearby. But what does he say? What's the compliment? Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now, I believe Nathaniel heard that because the very next thing is Nathaniel asking that question, how do you know me? But Jesus gave a great compliment. Instead of questioning Nathaniel's prejudice about Nazareth, instead of bashing him for going along with everybody else, the popular belief about that, that village, Jesus looks at the true inward character of this man and he begins this conversation with a twofold compliment. First, he calls him an Israelite indeed. To use that phrase may seem strange to you and I. What kind of compliment is that? Basically what Jesus is saying is, this man is more than an Israelite just by birth. He's not just an Israelite because he was born an Israelite. He lives it out. He strives to follow the law. He's an Israelite indeed, in the works he does. But then Jesus says, in whom there is no deceit, the old King James, guile. There are a couple of translations that have, in whom there is nothing false. I love where this word comes from, the one for deceit or guile or false. It was actually a word that was often used in that day and time in fishing for the bait. Jesus is saying Nathaniel does not try to bait people in. He is who he is through and through. There's no deceit in him. There's no hypocrisy in him in any way, shape, or form. Let me ask the question. When Jesus gave that compliment... Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. What was he doing? Jesus was breaking the cycle. Jesus was the one breaking the cycle. Nathaniel was seemingly against, or at least questioning, anything that came from Nazareth. But he was at least willing to go and see and meet Jesus. Our Lord could have picked out some sin from way back in Nathaniel's history. After all, he knew the hearts of people. He could have known one sin from a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, and just blasted Nathaniel for that sin. How could you ever have done that? But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus looked for, he saw, and he complimented the good in Nathaniel. Yes, Nathaniel had problems. But Jesus saw in him a man who refused, if you please, to bait the hook and deceive other people. We've already seen, by the way, in this text, a very powerful indicator that that's the kind of heart Nathaniel had. But you may have missed it. Back when Philip found Nathaniel in verse 45, remember what he said? We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You go, so what? How does that show what kind of heart Nathaniel had? It shows us that Nathaniel knew the law and the prophets. Philip did not go up to Nathaniel and say, Nathaniel... I found somebody who can help your marriage. That's not what he said. He didn't say, Nathaniel, I found somebody who can help your business grow. That's not at all what he said. Those things are fine and important. And people are seeking those things. But the number one thing on Nathaniel's list was someone who fulfilled the law and the prophets. Someone who fulfilled scripture. That's what most excited Nathaniel, and that's what Philip knew Nathaniel was looking for. Yes, we need to show people today that Jesus is the best answer for their marriage and their family. Yes, we need to help them see that he will help them with addictions and struggles and all sorts of things. But folks, we must, we absolutely must show people that Jesus is the only answer to the greatest problem they will ever have, and that is they are lost in sin without him. 
But to do that, we have to show them Scripture and show them that Jesus really is the Messiah, the promised Son of God. That's the kind of heart Nathaniel had. And Jesus was willing to compliment that, one that was seeking the will of God through Scripture. One writer talking about Nathaniel said this, This speaks volumes about Nathaniel's character. He was pure-hearted from the beginning. Certainly, he was human. He had sinful faults. His mind was tainted by a degree of prejudice. But his heart was not poisoned by deceit. He was no hypocrite. His love for God and his desire to see the Messiah were genuine. His heart was sincere and without guile or deceit. It is true that we need to expose error. We need to expose sin. We need to see those things and expose those things. That's true. But I'm speaking for myself when I say this. Sometimes it is far, far too easy to look for what's wrong with people and start there instead of trying to build a bridge and see what's right in someone and compliment them and start there. That's where Jesus started with this man. Now, Nathaniel wasn't perfect. But Jesus started with, there's something about this man that's genuine and pure. I never need to be afraid, we never need to be afraid to say when someone is in sin, when someone is making mistakes. Folks, if our heart loves the the lost, we need to find some good in that person and build the bridge and start there. There was a kind invitation. There was an honest compliment. And then number three, on Nathaniel's part, there was also the willing heart. The final thing that needs to be in place for the cycle to be broken is in the other person. Nathaniel exemplifies this with, with that question in verse 48, how do you know me? But it's also exemplified in his response to Jesus' words. Read again in verses 48 and 49. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. What a heart Nathaniel had. Remember, we don't know how much time elapses from when Philip invites Nathaniel to when this conversation with Jesus and Nathaniel occurs. It couldn't have been very long, and most scholars suggest it was the same day. But, but even if it was a few days, it's not very long between when Philip says, come and see, and when Nathaniel actually comes and sees. And so very little time has elapsed from Philip saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? When Nathaniel said that, excuse me, to turning around and saying to Jesus, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. It's remarkable how quick of a turnaround, a life change that occurs. And the words Nathaniel spoke are some of the most powerful statements of faith found anywhere in scripture. And incidentally, it is to Nathaniel that Jesus gave that powerful statement at the end of the chapter, verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Our Lord knew the heart of Nathaniel enough to know that he could handle that glorious statement, whether he fully understood it or not. Nathaniel could handle that in this moment. Here's our problem sometimes. I know it's mine. I may have some insight into someone's life, I may even have some intuition into what I think about somebody else. But I cannot fully and completely know the heart of another person. I cannot perfectly know the heart of somebody else like Jesus did. 
And so then it becomes easier to say, then I just won't share the gospel with anybody because I don't know if they're going to accept the message or not. I I can't read their heart. But folks, not knowing someone else's heart should be the motivation to tell everyone about Jesus Christ. Remember, in Jesus' parable of the sower, the sower sows everywhere. Yes, there are some good results and there are some not so good results. But he continues to sow the seed everywhere. And yes, there are some good and honest hearts out there who hear the word and understand it. Matthew thirteen twenty three tells us that person will indeed bear fruit and yield. Now, I want to get very personal here, but I mean personal with me as well. And I pray you'll be with me through this. One of the most destructive and dangerous words in our vocabulary when it comes to evangelism and teaching others is the little three-letter word, but. That little three-letter word is too often enough to keep me from ever making the effort to ask someone to come and see. That one little word is too often enough to keep me from being the one to try to break the cycle. I I think I know the other person. I've come up with some metric. I've come up with some measurement. I've come up with some standard. And they don't meet that standard. And so there's no way they're going to listen to the gospel. There's no way they're going to return to church. They're just not going to listen. Well, I I know he needs the gospel, but I've seen how he dresses. People like that don't want to hear the truth. Now, I'd like to talk to her, but she's so much younger than me, and I don't understand her generation. She won't listen to an old fogey like me. Uh, They live on our street, but I've seen the kind of people who come over in the evenings. It's obvious we have nothing in common. They'll never listen. They they used to come to church here, but it's been so long. There's no way they're going to listen to me. I like her, but I see what she posts on Facebook. It's obvious she doesn't care about religion. Here's the thing. Those things could be true. But I don't have the ability to read someone's, someone else's heart perfectly. That little three-letter word, but, needs to be completely erased from our vocabulary as it pertains to reaching out to others. That person may be older, or they may be younger. That other person may be completely immoral so far as I know. I may not have anything in common with that other person. That person may be antagonistic towards religion. It may be that they've been hurt by Christians in the past. But at one time, at one time, you and I were lost without Jesus too. Even if you and I were quote-unquote raised in the church, at some point in time, you were lost without hope, without Christ. But somebody broke the cycle. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was an elder. Maybe a preacher, maybe a friend, maybe a classmate, maybe someone who isn't with us anymore. Somebody broke the cycle. Someone was just spreading the seed of the Word of God. And listen, they could not have predicted with 100% accuracy whether you would be faithful for the rest of your life or not. They might have thought, well, that's a good process, but they didn't know. Nobody knows. None of us knows perfectly. And by the way, some of us, even in this room who are Christians, may not have responded positively at first. Or we may have responded positively one time and then walked away for a while and have returned. Those things happen. Listen to me very carefully. Our job as Christians is not to be soil testers. Our job as Christians is to be seed sowers. That's our job. 
The sower did not go out in Jesus' parable and say, oh, that's rocky soil, forget that. No, he just sowed the seed. Some fell on rocky soil and some on that wayside, packed down soil, some on the thorny soil, and praise God, some on the good soil. But you don't see anywhere in that parable that there is a soil tester. There's just someone willing to sow the seed. We break the cycle when we forget that word, but, and we simply sow the seed and pray that someone somewhere has a heart like Nathaniel's. In the case of the fairy tale, the turning point is just one little phrase. Thank you. And that broke the cycle. And while there were still downward turns and still obstacles to overcome, the rest of the story is one of growth and is one of love. And it becomes a magical fairy tale, love story. But that is a fairy tale. In the real life case of Nathaniel, it was the combination of a kind invitation, an honest compliment, and a willing heart that forever changed his life. And in the case of countless people today, they need someone. They need someone who's willing to break the cycle. They need someone who sees like God sees. Do you remember way back in the Old Testament? When David was chosen to be the king, one of the most powerful phrases in all the Bible is when Samuel was told, don't look at his height, don't look at his appearance. For God does not see as man sees. Man sees the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Ninth Avenue family, it's time we stop seeing as man sees. And it's time we started spreading the seed of the Word of God, no matter what someone looks like, no matter what kind of background they might have, no matter what kind of things I may think I know about him or her, no matter whether they grew up here or not, no matter whether they've been to church or not, it's time to break the cycle. Next week, I'll be honest with you, your preacher's going to have a hard time getting through next week's sermon. I've been crying right in the stinking thing. Because okay? it's so exciting. What, what if, what if someone finally takes that invitation? And what if they become more than just a guest? What if they come, become faithful? Oh, how, I'm, 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 can, we, I, can I start preaching it now? I've got it on my phone. Can I go ahead and just start? I'm ready to go. I'm ready for next Sunday. I'm ready to talk about the good side of this thing. I'm ready to talk about when someone decides it's time to become a Christian. But folks, it's up to us. It's up to us to keep saying be our guest. It's up to us to say we want to move you, to help you move from outside of Christ to inside of Christ. It's time to help them kill the beast of fear and it's time to break the cycle. It's time for you to become a Christian. It's time for you as a Christian to be more faithful. And that time is now while we stand and sing to encourage you.